like a live podcast okay but visual I guess that's what live that's means. what live means perfect um yeah we're starting off great this is gonna be fun yes um so for the last month we've been in this series on holiness everybody following me on that are you like yes we have been um any thoughts on that are you like man I felt good or are you like wow I've been actually crawling under the pews every week and just not yep Zach is like that's what I've been doing I've been crawling under the pews perfect um really and I know Spencer has shared this over the last couple of weeks but our heart behind this series especially with it being our vision series meaning we're starting a new ministry year and this is kind of what we're pressing into is recognizing that holiness at large we feel like is sort of a lost um art or topic or emphasis in the church, especially the church in the West, and really feeling a call to um, come back to this sacred um, conversation around holiness and recognizing that this is really um, the the place that revival and renewal is birthed out of uh, and being drawn to that. So I don't know if you have any thoughts that you'd like to share just on where we've been the last couple of weeks, but just wanted to revisit this series we're in. Yeah, so I think our hope has been for all of us to reimagine, rediscover afresh this ancient doctrine way of life that has been truly lost over the last 50 or so years for various reasons in the Western world, um, but has been at the core of every renewal movement, every revival movement across church history, um, and is so clearly expounded upon throughout the narrative of the scriptures. Uh, in fact, you see the word holy or holiness uh, about 900 times or so throughout the scriptures. That's even 300 times more than the word love. Mm -hmm. And so I think for us to have a balanced, holistic vision of all of life, discipleship of Jesus, formation, uh, maturity, change, transformation, all of the Christian cliches, um, we have to recapture holiness as a people. Um, and so actually I have felt a burden to, to pursue this conversation for the rest of my life and help to unpack it and to bring clarity to it. And so I hope it's been refreshing for you. I hope it's been transformative for you. Um, but I do think as we consider even the last couple of vision series, talking about a rhythm of life or all of life discipleship, habit formation, practices, um, last year looking at stage theory and stage formation, asking this kind of spiritual car cartography question of where am I in my maturity uh, into to wholeness, um, and then moving into this this year's vision series of holiness. I think it all builds off of one another. So. Yeah, good stuff. Last week, we talked about the concept of being holy in all that you do, and sort of the doing and the practice behind that. Um, in our lead team or staff meeting this past week, I actually um, told them that, like, man, guys, that spoke to me so much, and I feel like spoke to the heart of us as pa your pastors and leaders, but also the heartbeat of our community and what we're after together. I told our leadership team, like, I think if there's a way for me to make that a required teaching, like, you can't actually call Emmaus home 
If you didn't hear last week's teaching, you can't be part of the family without that. Now, obviously, I can't force you to do that. But for you to hear my heart, if you missed last week, I really would encourage you to go back and listen to the podcast or on YouTube um, to, to be able to, I guess, hear our heart articulated in words and what we're all after as we journey together. So just wanted to put that out there uh, for you to have a little bit, of, little bit of homework to do as you go home this week. Um, and so as we move forward, this conversation today is sort of a response to last week's call or charge to doing and recognizing like, okay, we can say like our actions need to look different as we pursue holiness and practice the way of Jesus together. But practically, like where do we start or what does that look like? So we think this week's or today's conversation is really vital in that, integral in part of our journeying towards Jesus. Um, James K.A. Smith says something along the lines of you can't think your way into Christ likeness. Like can't just be a mind thing. So as we practice and journey together, this conversation today is coming from a place of wanting to give us some practical tools in our tool belt or next steps to what that can look like. Um, so to follow me a little bit here, um, in January of each year, we put together uh, an annual report. Anybody seen that annual report that recaps the past ministry year? Three people. Let's go. I love that we put lots of uh, hard go. work and effort into that annual report for all three of you. Um, well, for the rest of you, just so you know, we have an annual report where we recap the past year, look forward to the year ahead. And I went back um, in the last couple of weeks and was rereading. Spencer and I have like a pastoral letter that we write and put in there. And there was one little phrase there that talked about, in that letter, that talked about um, just our desire for us to communally become more like Jesus and what that could look like practically played out. Uh, but we said that's all ushered in through prayer and spaces of confession. Um, so just keep that in mind today as we have this conversation, that this is something that's been our, on our hearts really before January, but it's actually in writing from a letter that we put together in January. Uh, and it probably stems from some of the history that we know about a guy by the name of John Wesley. Anybody heard of John Wesley before? A really important guy in shaping probably what we know as the church and the method of um, following Jesus and what it looks like to come together as believers here in the States today. Um, so Wesley had what he called spaces of formation. Those spaces started out in a large gathering like this. He called this a society. Then it moved down into what he called a class, which would be like our house churches that meet throughout the week. Then he had a smaller space of like two to five people. He called that a band. And then there's an intimate space of just you and Jesus. I have a slide. Yeah, here we go. Um, here's a slide for you in case you want to write that down. Um, in saying it out loud, you may recognize, okay, there's clarity here. We have our Sunday gathering. We have our house churches. We have this intimate space between you and Jesus. But this morning, we're going to speak a little bit more about that band space of two to four people. Um, Wesley really saw, as I mentioned, all of these spaces is um, very important in your transformation and formation formation and becoming more like Jesus. Um, but as your pastors and leaders, we feel a deep conviction about that band space and wanted to be able to really press into that this morning. Yeah. So I think also to reiterate some of this as it pertains to last week, um, it's important to recognize a couple of things. One, every bit of our formation is empowered by the spirit of God. It's not man-made. Okay. <laughs> you cannot through willpower change yourself. What we can do is create conditions mm -hmm for change to happen. And we have to recognize, too, that we have all been endowed with a freedom and an agency and a responsibility to stop doing certain things and to start doing certain things. 
And so, you know, my hope is that in this conversation, this is a strategy for change, a strategy for transformation that begins with the transcendent power of the Spirit moving in our life and through our life in order that we might actually make the right choices, do the right things, and stop doing the things that do not produce life, um, that do not produce wholeness, um, that do not fall in alignment with the way of Jesus. And I think we are finding that historically, revival and renewal across the church has always had an emphasis on this higher call toward holiness as well as this distinction from the rest of the world to be a unique people. Uh, there's an old Mute Math song that I used to love called Peculiar People. Anybody listen to Mute Math in the back, back in the day? Yeah. And there is this sense that we are to be peculiar people, to be a unique breed in this world. And so in this, my hope is that we are helping create a framework for an all of life pathway into formation and discipleship. But we have felt that this space we're talking about today strategically has been left out or not given a ton of uh, intentionality. Mm -hmm. um, and I think we can agree that if this is the only space you're in, and if it's once a month, I promise you're not going to become more like Jesus. Yeah. Um, if it's this plus house churches, you're going to make some good friends, build some great relationships, but it's still probably not enough as it pertains to all of life formation and discipleship. Um, so that's just a couple of extra thoughts as it pertains to um, what we're going after and what we're hoping to also curtail and stop um, yeah. and the kind of baseline underneath it all. Yeah. I um, am going to take something that you said in house church this week. Um, does anybody love honesty? Like, just be honest, be frank. We all say it, but then sometimes it happens and you're like, oh, I wish you wouldn't have said that. This week, Spencer looked at our house church and said, let me be honest with you guys. Let me be painfully clear. Like Every we, ear perks up when someone says that. They're like, oh, what's he about to say? I don't know. I'm like, <laughs> um, <laughs> let me be painfully clear. We have, as your staff and leadership here at Emmaus, we have a strong agenda for your life. And everybody's like, ooh. No, I want to pick my own agenda. I don't want you to have an agenda for my, like, what do, you, what do you mean? And he said, our agenda, and this is true, guys, our agenda for your life is wholehearted. Every facet, every arm, every piece of you, every piece of your life becoming more like Jesus. Yeah. Being formed and shaped by his ways and his calls and his yeah. asks. And so I say that not just to our house church, thank you for all our house church folks in the room, but also to you as our larger community, the, the corporate gathering here, that is our hope and agenda, yeah. not just for your life, but for ours as well. Yeah. So that's kind of the baseline for our conversation and today. <laughs> if, if you do not want that, you're going to find great tension in this community. And it will be less than a safe space. It will be a very challenging space for you. Um, it will be uncomfortable for you. But if it's actually what you want, it will be a beautiful place of flourishing and connection and change and transformation. Um, but I recognize that sometimes church communities use these kind of um, generic statements like the best is yet to come. It's amazing. It's wonderful. We're going to be great. We're going to change your life. Listen, this is hard. This is messy. I'm all for this concept called spiritual realism. Let's put it out in front. You're going to experience disillusionment, disenchantment, the mess. It's going to be hard and challenging. You're going to experience relational conflict. 
Gasp. Right? You're going to be offended. You're going to be offended. And I just think it's more helpful up front to say, this is reality, but we're inviting all of you to journey together because we feel like along this narrow way, there is abundance and flourishing and freedom and um, peace and wholeness. So let's just be painfully clear from the jump. Is that, is that okay? Okay. I if it's it. not, I'm sorry. <laughs> like, it's nice knowing you. Yeah, you know? this, is, this is when you get up and leave. Um, uh, Wesley's famous for this saying, there is no holiness, but social holiness. So Spencer, why don't you share a little bit about what that social holiness concept means? Yeah, so, you know, Wesley is, is famous for saying um, there is no religion but social religion, and there is no holiness but social holiness. Um, when you think about, again, renewal movements in the Western church, one of the reasons why Wesley comes up a lot is because he and a few others were behind really the greatest revival movement in the Western hemisphere that began in England and moved over to the U.S. back in the 18th century and into the early 19th century. Um, and for Wesley, he had this vision of scriptural holiness uh, in the midst of a moral decline in the Church of England during the 18th century. But he also came to this understanding that our holiness is not privatized, that, that your religion is not privatized, that we do life together. We are social creatures. We are interdependent upon one another. I love this from um, the psychologist I've come to love named Paul Vitz. He says, it's out of relationship that we come into existence. And so for us, our holiness as individuals, our devotion to God, our distinction from the world is cultivated in relationship with those with whom we are journeying with. Um, and so we feel as we cultivate holiness, as we look at transformation and devotion, we have to recognize that it is a social endeavor. It is a relational endeavor. I also found this interesting. The word individual is found nowhere in the scriptures. Zero times. Not just the NLT or the NIV. Check the ESV. Check the NASB. Check the KJV if that's your fancy. Uh, it's nowhere. In fact, the very idea of individual means to be separate from the whole. And so I think it's appropriate for us to be reminded that though God is uniquely personal for us, it's not merely a private endeavor. It is a social endeavor. And so when we talk about social holiness, we are recognizing that we cannot be cultivated in holiness without one another. Fundamentally, it's impossible. Well, and I don't know what your background and experience may have been. Um, if you've grown up in the church, if you have not, either one is totally fine. But I know my experience was a very individualized, like it's a me and God thing. Um, and really have, have had an um, eye-opening experience in recognizing that the Trinity is, the, we serve a triune God, you know, three parts, one God. And so what it looks like to recognize, like even in the distinctiveness of three beings in the Trinity, there is relationship there. There is community there. And so if we are saying like, hey, I'm living uh, my life in following the way or practicing the way of Jesus, following God and what he wants from me, then we're um, mirroring or embodying this Trinity and this communal concept. And, and that has to be done in community. 
that can't be done as individual people. So um, I love what you shared there. Let's go ahead and dive in um, to a passage of scripture that's been, I, I think, pivotal for Wesley and his journey towards these spaces of formation, but also for us in our own conviction here. So we're going to dive into James 5 now to talk a little bit more about what communal or social holiness looks like played out. Yeah, so let's let's read James 5, and I'm going to read this slowly, and I hope that this can um, kind of plant roots into the soil of your heart this morning. James 5.16 says, Therefore, confess your sins to each other, some translations say one another, and pray for each other so that, or in order that, you may be healed. There are a couple words in that verse that I think you could underline or highlight. Confess and pray are two actions or activities that you can underline or highlight. Circle the each other, the one another, again, the social component in this verse, and a word that I think we forget when we read this, and that's the word healed. Mm -hmm. Healed. Um, In the Greek, the word that's used for healed actually means to make whole, to make whole. So it could read, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be whole or may be made whole. And as we've considered holiness, we have recognized that the process of holiness is moving us towards wholeness completeness, integration, alignment of all of the dimensions of our person towards God and his person, his purpose, and his path. Um, Now, the word confess, some of us are very familiar with, um, means to acknowledge. And we're going to get into that in just a second in terms of the technicalities around what it means to confess and what confession means. But it means to admit openly or to recognize Now, the other interesting piece as it pertains to this text is that it is in the present tense. It's in the present tense. So this call to confession or to confess is not a one-time act that you did right before you got saved, quote-unquote. It is an ongoing process that you engage in for the rest of your journey with Jesus, this side of eternity. It is ongoing. Your salvation is a whole process that you're in. If you were to ask, I think, New Testament followers of Jesus, when did you get saved? They would be like, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm in the midst of my salvific journey now. And confession is a part of this ongoing journey from justification into sanctification, being made whole, being purified, being cleansed, being molded, being shaped. And it's in the present tense. It's ongoing. It's not one time. It's also in the middle voice. So it's not active and it's not passive, but middle voice which is interesting because what that means for us is that we operate as both the subject and the object of confession. Now, only if you're like an English nerd do you really understand what I'm saying. What I'm trying to articulate is that our formation, our discipleship to Jesus, has to be seen through the lens that we are both the subject and the object of our discipleship to Jesus. We participate and something is happening to us as we participate in the journey. It is not just one way. It's not just active. We're not just the subject and we're not just the object. 
Some of us think we're just the subject. We're doing all the things. Nothing's happening to us. Or some of us think we are just the object and God's doing all of it. Both are incomplete. You have to participate willingly, as we've talked about. So in this, very, this sentence, this, this verse, something is happening to us and we are engaging in some activity as well. So you're both the subject and the object of your formation. And now, I know you said we get to the confession piece in just a second here, so I'm, I'm assuming that's where you're going next, but I don't know if I'm the only one in the room when we hear the word confess or confession, like if you just maybe cringe a little bit, like what is, that makes you feel uncomfortable? What exactly are you asking All the Catholics me? are triggered right now. <laughs> um, so yeah, let's maybe sit And the in... ones that didn't grow up Catholic are like, what's confession? <laughs> Fair enough. So let's sit in that for a little bit. <laughs> so... Um, how many grew up in uh, confessional spaces as a child? Maybe you're used to confession as a practice. Yeah, not many hands go up, okay? Uh, it's interesting how we negate imperatives in the New Testament. But anyway, um, much of confession has been re relegated to three spaces. The first space, it's been relegated between you and a priest once a month, okay? Or it's been relegated to just you and God. The third space is it's been relegated only to a therapist's office. Three spaces it's been relegated to. Despite the fact that this was a practice of the early followers of the way. It was a practice of the community. Just as gathering is a practice. Just as reading the scriptures is a practice. Just as eating together is a practice. Just as the, the table is a sacramental act. It was a practice in the early days. It's a practice now. Confession was a communal practice and it should be a communal practice for us now. Not relegated to just a priest or yeah. just to God or just to a therapist. But part of the life of our community as followers of the way. This is one of those one another commands. We did the series earlier in the year on life together and community, the one another commands, and this is one of those. Mm -hmm. um, confession is about a mutual bond. Confession is about mutuality. There's connection. And it is also focused on this notion of like journeying together. This goes back to the Emmaus story. We're going after something. We're going in a direction and confession is part of journeying together. Um, a short little definition for you, as we kind of already hinted at, confession really is about acknowledgement or disclosure of one's whole self. Mm. One's whole self. It is admitting our weaknesses, our temptations, our sin, our brokenness, our behavior, both sins of commission and sins of omission. And what I mean by that is often we're pretty good at confessing, at least those of us who do, at confessing the things that we did that we shouldn't have done or the thoughts we shouldn't have had. But rarely do we talk about confession as it pertains to not doing the things we should have done or not thinking in a certain manner that we should think in that way. Commission and omission. And it's the space where we are acknowledging the whole of our being with another person. Every bit of it. There's also this notion of accountability, which is anathema for millennials and Gen Z in 2023. Accountability. It's also got this emphasis around repentance. Repentance is a part of confession. 
If you're just acknowledging sin and not repenting, you're missing the full scope of what confession's all about. It's about repentance. And then finally, I think this is an important one, confession also has to do with absolution. That is to say, another brother or sister looking at you in your eyes with loving attachment saying, you are forgiven. You are freed. There is absolution. And that's kind of the whole scope or the whole picture as it pertains to um, what confession is. Um, and we're going to get into how we do that. But I think acknowledgement of one's whole self, bringing all of who you are to another person who you are journeying with towards the same goal is the picture of what confession is all about. Mm. So. I love that. And um, the absolution piece of that specifically, I want to come back to in a little bit, because uh, I think there's something so beautiful there about being known and seen in our fullness and still being loved. Um, it's also terrifying. It is. It, is ter- it sounds terrifying. great, though. I, I would say, though, like it's like, oh, idealistically, oh, yeah. that is beautiful. Practically, that sucks. Yes, yes. <laughs> that hurts. Maybe I shouldn't have said that. Um, we cannot take that out. Sorry, if there's kids. In the- <laughs> Anyways, um, so you mentioned you mentioned confession being relegated for some folks that that number one to like the priestly space. Um, I think for me, confession um, at its peak, which this is still beautiful in a needed space, but at its peak has been more like those couple of moments. Um, on Sunday mornings before we partake of communion, where I'm like running through the week in my head, like, Lord, forgive me for that thing. Lord, I'm sorry for that thing. And I think there's something, like I said, beautiful about, like that's a needed first step. That's beautiful. And communally, like we're going to have a liturgy together at the end of the service today where we communally declare that to the Lord. And I think, like I said, beautiful, needed, just not the fullness of it. Um, And in my preparation for our conversation today, I um, heard, I guess, parallel that I thought was captivating. And that's that recognizing the New Testament concept of confession looked a lot more like an AA meeting than that moment that I mentioned at the end of a church service coming down to take communion. Uh, in an AA meeting, everyone's sitting around, and the first step in AA is, it says, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. And I think even the verbiage there, there's such a powerful tool in the work of our transformation to recognize that we were powerless over sin in that moment, that we chose something that wasn't what was best for us, and that our lives are not our own to manage. Like, I am not capable of the the best things and the best choices in all spaces, but praise God that He is. In that moment in AA, when you're in a circle admitting your own defeat, and you have brothers and sisters around that circle looking back at you, choosing to still love you and accept you in that moment, I think that's glorious. So um, let's talk a little bit about why confession or accountability is necessary in the first place. Yeah, back to even the AA reference. Um, If you don't know, AA is very successful. Hmm. It's a very successful program. Um, And I do think that we have a lot to learn as it pertains to the 12 steps even. Um, in confession. So I just wanted to kind of mention that, that as we consider even confession and looking at this example with AA, like it works. Mm. It actually works. And um, yeah, I just wanted to kind of, you know, affirm that. Um, So, you know, why is confession necessary? Um, Why is accountability necessary? A couple of things. One, um, Gandhi is famous for saying love is the 
strongest force that the world possesses. Strongest force. So if love is a force, then that means to love another is to move them in a specific direction. To move them in a specific direction. And I think that as we consider loving one another, we have to take into account the direction in which we are loving people in and what we are loving them toward. I kind of hinted at that last week, that Jesus is the master at this. Jesus was never just indifferent about sin. Love is not indifference. Love is not just neutral. Love actually moves another in a specific direction. Classically, it's defined as to will the good of another at a philosophical level. And so when we think about Jesus, a couple of encounters come to my mind. One is Jesus and the woman caught in adultery, right? He advocates for her. He stands in the gap for her. He attaches to her. He sees her. He, he, he joins arms with her and looks at the crowd and says, you who have no sin, cast the first stone. Yeah. He advocates for her. Then he looks at her and says, go and sin no more. Right. He is loving her in a direction, right? Same thing with the woman at the well. Has this moment with her. And he's like telling her her whole autobiography right there at this well. And she's like, what is happening right now? And he kind of rebukes her. He ends up saying like, if you knew the living water that was here, like you wouldn't be asking me for, for, you know, a drink, right? And he's loving her in the direction of holiness. So it's a necessary space because we need other people alongside of us to help us ask the question, Am I moving in a direction that is after Jesus and his vision and his way in this journey? And to love another is to move another into that direction. I just want to interject, and maybe we're all on the same page here, but the um, weight of how countercultural what you just said is, yes. is kind of like, I just want to make sure we're all seeing that weight. Because the culture around us defines love very differently. Sure. It accepts everything. It affirms everything. But that's not what you're saying at all. It's not at all what the word actually means. Like, def- at, a defi- at a definition level. Yeah. Like, we assume love primarily means desire. Mm. And there's an there's a, there's a a- aspect of that. But in the scriptures, love is an act- action. It's a choice. It's something that we do. It's a motivation behind what we do. Mm. And so I think for us, um, to love another person is to actually orient ourselves to help push them in a specific direction. Um, so, for instance, if... if if I just look at Selah and just say I love you for the rest of her life and never help her move in a specific direction, homegirl is not going to step into uh, a place of health or wholeness. Um, there has to be a level of correction at some point to the ones in which we love. If there's a healthy attachment, if there is a, a mutuality. And so I want to recapture that, that essence, that to love another person is to say we're moving in a specific direction. It's not just to gaze faces, it's actually to be looking at the same direction mm. that's the most important. Yeah, so, so good. That was all. It's, I just wanted to stop and okay. say, wow. Okay. <laughs> that's different than the world around us, you know? Yeah. Um, the other aspect of this too is in Matthew 28, when we see the Great Commission, we get focused primarily on um, this evangelistic call. Go make disciples and baptize them. Let's do it. But we forget to teach them how to obey. Yeah. It is in this space that we are able, I think, to embrace obedience, to embrace what it means to um, trust in the teachings of Jesus. A lot of us have knowledge of what Jesus did command, but are we obeying what he commanded? Mm. 
it's a fundamental question we have to ask. Um, a couple of other aspects of this in terms of why it's necessary is that we tend to be blind on our own. We are pretty much unaware. Much of our behavior is unconscious. A lot of the things we do is out of habit. Um, Carl Jung, who's a famous uh, psychoanalyst, calls this our shadow side. All of us have a shadow side um, in terms of weaknesses or tendencies that we may have, habits that are un unhealthy, wounds or sin. And so we need other people in our life to shine a light into those shadow spaces and to help us become aware. I think a good example of that too, um, for anyone in the room who might be married, or even if you've had a roommate before, anybody had a roommate before? I was told heading into marriage, I should have been told this heading into college with a roommate, um, that marriage would be the most painfully clear mirror I ever looked into. I don't know about any of the Amen. other married folks in the room, but I thought that I was a pretty decent human being. And then I got married, and I had this glaring image of myself staring back at me, and all of my pride and ego and selfishness and, like, weird things that I was fixated on. And I was like, and then I blamed it on Spencer, right? Like, man, I got married, and you made these things happen. <laughs> But the reality is close proximity helps people to see things yeah. and to point out what we can't actually see ourselves. Yeah. And confession has the ability, because I think it's a sacred act, to break the power of sin in your life, to liberate you from bondage. It's about freedom. I mean, how often have you shared something and you're like, wow, a weight is off of my shoulders because I finally shared it. Because what the enemy tries to do is he tries to force you into isolation, force you into isolation. Um, when we think about even our, you know, primordial parents, Adam and Eve, the first thing that, thing that they do when they turn from God in rebellion is they hide. And they hide from one another. And that's what sin does. Sin puts you into hiding. When you confess, you are bringing it to light and it's breaking the power of sin in your life in order for you to live free and to be liberated. Um, Proverbs 18.1 says, An isolated man seeks his own desires. And we live in a society that's kind of, you know, focused on this buffered self, like live within yourself, isolate yourself, no new friends, right? Antisocial is such a, you know, common phrase, you know? But like people are walking in bondage. Why? We need one another, we need others to help make sense of ourselves. I could sit down with you and ask you five questions, and you're going to learn something new about yourself you probably didn't know. Why? Because other people help us make sense of our shadows, of our tendencies, of our own brokenness, of the things that are in our unconscious that we had no clue about. Um, and so I think that's a couple of things as it pertains to, um, you know, why it's necessary. The other thing is that the act of confession in this practice is actually a practice of death and resurrection. It is a practice of dying. Because to bring your whole self to another person with total honesty is hard. And it hurts. It actually hurts. If you practice confession well, it's probably going to hurt. But my hope is it's more like a surgery than it is, you know, being harmed by another person. Right? Um, it's interesting... Jim Wilder is somebody I've, I've read. He's a clinical psychologist. He talks about the brain having pain sensors. 
and how like one of the things about leprosy, like leprosy actually will diminish pain sensors in your brain. And so a lot of people who have leprosy lose fingers and toes because they don't feel pain anymore. Mm -hmm. um, our brain is hardwired for these pain sensors to help us go, that hurts, I shouldn't do that. But if we don't experience any kind of hurt, we actually never change. Mm. Our brain's wired this way. I, I, just, I found that to be deeply um, interesting. He says, our brain is programmed to, to say, if it doesn't hurt, I have no incentive to change. And we always fill our brain with other things in order to cope. But for us, we can't teach people to change if they don't feel a degree of pain. And that's actually really hard for us to grasp in our time. But for us, we have to recognize there has to be something for you and I. There has to be something that we don't like or our brain won't adjust. And sometimes we get caught up in ourselves and other people have to go, that's not good for our brain to recognize it. Otherwise, we will habitually continue in the same act or behavior. It's actually killing us um, habitually. Well, I love, you mentioned the healthy attachments thing earlier. And if you look into more theory around those healthy attachments, we were actually created in a way that that's where healthy attachments are formed. When we're able to make a mistake and apologize, or maybe a sin is called out and yeah. we're forced to a, a place of repentance and apology, the healthy attachment is formed that much stronger than if we would have never done something wrong in the first place. Yeah. That's mind boggling that I am wired in a way that for me to get closer to those around me in the body of Christ, or anyone for that matter, I am better um, set up for success in that relational connection if I mess up and have the chance to apologize than if I would have never done anything wrong in the first place. Yeah, and the other aspect of this is as we build these attachments, we are forming a group identity. Hmm. We're saying things like, this is who we are. This is what we do. There's not a lot of you, and there's not a whole lot of I. There's a we. And you're able to sit in front of someone and say, um, this is not who you are. This is not your destiny. We are meant to live this way. We are meant to move in this direction. I'm with you. We are together. Um, and I think that's where we move from um, toxic shame to the benefit of our brain recognizing that activity is not good for me, but I have someone who's going to walk with me through it. Yeah, that's good fundamentally different. You know, Wilder says we have 90 seconds to move from shame to joy in a conversation with another person. Because when you bear your burdens and you share something that another person's probably going to have a certain response to, you're going to feel a sense of shame. It's an emotion. But how do we redeem shame in the brain? It's through joy and attachment with another person that looks at you and says, I see you. I'm with you. Let's move in this direction. So good. Right? It's like someone coming up to you and going, your breath stinks. Like, you ever done that to you? Your breath stinks. And you're like, oh, I feel shame. Literally, right now. I do. Or saying, hey, here's, a, here's some gum. I got you. Here's some gum. Right? There's a little bit of a difference. Now, that's a very shallow, you know, reference. But there is a difference when someone's saying, you got a booger in your nose, man. Versus someone giving you a tissue. Yeah. Slipping a tissue and say, hey, it's all good. I got you. You know, like... We need someone to say, your breath stinks, man. But here's some gum. I'm with you. <laughs> You're right? Like, you know, it's like the coach who just screams at the kid. What are you doing? That was terrible. You're terrible. 
versus saying, hey, you made a bad play, man. But we don't do that. We've been going over this in practice. Let us be a learning opportunity. Yeah. Let's not do it again because that's not what we do. Big difference. But here's the thing. Because we live in a time where we have a low relational IQ, the moment that someone brings something up, we retreat. We leave. You know why? It's always easier to leave than it is to stay. Mm. And all of us are wondering why we're so lonely. Because we cannot commit to the very thing that we long for. Mm. Because we're terrified. But we actually need someone else who is willing to look at us and call out sin while their arms are locked with ours. Mm. We long for that as individuals. And so I think that's what we're going after. That's what we're calling people to. But we have to recognize that there is a, a level of pain involved in it in order for us to change. You will not change if there isn't a degree of hurt involved. And I think that is actually liberating for me to know. Yeah. You know, it's in my hurt and in my, cha- in my ch- challenges and my temptations and my struggles that I will be ch- transformed mm. and changed. Mm. Um, we just did for leadership. We just did surveys that we sent out to all leaders, including the lead team they did for us. And I got to sit down with every person and we got to sit down with our lead team and walk through, you know, areas of strength, which we love, and then areas of improvement, which no one likes. Although actually the women loved it, the men hated it. That says something. Um, and, you know, it was interesting to sit and look at these, these aspects of my life where I need improvement. Yeah. You know, um, we want all the rah-rah, you can do it until someone says, hey, you're actually not doing this in the best way possible. Um, there's a visceral response, but it was actually so helpful for me in order for me to change, to love others better or to love others well. So yeah. Any thoughts yeah. Well, and that? I mean, we see that practically p- played out like, you know, when you go to the gym, it hurts, but you become stronger or have more endurance or whatever the thing is you're working at at the gym or, um, I'm in any environment. What I feel like Nike has a t-shirt somewhere that says no pressure, no diamonds, like even to form diamonds, pressure is, everyone's like, yes, I've seen that. I've had that as a five-year-old, um, pressure is required to form something beautiful. So to, to recognize everywhere around us, sacrifice or pain or tension and friction is required to produce something good. Then why do we think our spiritual life should look any different? You know, our formation and becoming more like Jesus isn't, isn't going to be any different than that. So, um, I mean, literally we are called to die. Let's die together. You know, like, that's what we're inviting everyone to. Let's yeah. die together. Let's do it. And believing that there is life on the other side. Mm. That is countercultural yeah. in our time. Like we love Matthew's gospel up until Matthew 16, when he says, you can't even be my disciple unless mm. you pick up your cross and die to yourself. And it's a daily act, you know, daily exercise, daily practice. Um, but that's what we're after. And by the way, to die is to actually hurt to mm-hmm. some degree. Harming is different than hurting, by the way. Um, but I do think there is a degree of shedding of the flesh being mortified. That's a mm. historical phrase in the, in the history of the church. Or p- being purged, this idea of purgation. Mm. Uh, it's not supposed to feel great, but it's actually meant to, in the midst of it, produce a sense of joy going, man, that's actually liberating mm. for me. Mm. So... As you were talking about um, the idea of picking up our cross, I think I um, just was imagining, anybody got a Jesus piece, a cross necklace, 
a couple folks in the room. I'm imagining like as we read Matthew 16 and it says, pick up your cross and follow me, that we're hoping for this like small, dainty, silver or yes. gold, cute little cross, Ornate right? jewelry. Yes, not too heavy. Um, but then we look at the scriptures and we see Jesus bearing a cross in so much pain and agony and so heavy on his back um, and recognizing that our cross probably isn't as small and dainty as we want it to be or think it is. Um, we're going to talk just a couple minutes here about what this looks like practically. So how do we how do we do confession? What does this look like? Um, I mentioned earlier John Wesley had this band space of two to four folks. So if if Spencer says yes, as we participate this, it, excuse me, as we participate in this act of confession, we will become more like Jesus. I don't know about you guys, but I'm like, okay, let's do it then. How do we do it? Like I want to become more like Jesus. So what we are um, prescribing is maybe the word that comes to mind. If you want to become more like Jesus, our recommendation or our charge to you is to band together with two to four people. You're going to meet on a consistent basis. I have all this written on a cute little piece of paper as you walk out the door today. You're going to meet on a consistent basis. And by consistent, I mean weekly or bi-weekly. And I don't know about you, but like the idea of adding something to my schedule, it can be a little bit overwhelming. But when I recognize, hey, there's fruit that's attached to this is I'm meeting with one, uh, one yeah. two, three other people to bear my soul. There, the, it is going to be worth the hour that I spend weekly or bi-weekly because I'm going to become more like Jesus in yeah. this process. So our encouragement is to meet consistently, weekly or bi-weekly, to have two to four folks that you are getting together with um, you're going to be walking through some questions that I have on that piece of paper for you by the door. Really, that is to help facilitate a discussion around confession. At some point, my hope is that that's going to become a little bit more natural for us and we won't have to follow questions. But the reality is most of us probably aren't used to sitting down with a couple of other people and bearing our souls. Even that phrase, bear my soul, I'm like, what does that even mean? Like, how do I reveal parts of myself to someone else that yeah. I don't even know? Yeah. How do I reveal areas and corners that I'm blinded to if I can't see them myself? So these questions that we have for you guys, like I mentioned, they're by the door, are to help facilitate that discussion. It doesn't mean you have to ask every question or that's a requirement. It's to help bring to light things that you may not see or may not be willing to share. That's what the questions are meant for. Um, it is our recommendation that maybe there's a trial period here. Um, Spencer might not like that I shared this, but heading into, um, really it was around the COVID time, I started to feel a conviction around Sabbath and recognizing like, wow, this is clearly laid out in the scriptures, but I actually have never heard it or practiced it or like stepped into it before. So around the time of the pandemic, I, I felt the Lord say like, you need to practice this. And my response is any, you know, godly, God-fearing woman is, was like, I'll give it a try, but I'm just not sure if I'll commit to it, Lord. <laughs> so I told the Lord, anybody ever work out deals with the Lord? Here's my deal. Like, Doesn't Lord, go well. And this one went all right. <laughs> I'm like, Lord... I will, give you, I. I will give you four weeks of Sabbathing one day a week. I'll give you four Saturdays for the month. Of, it was January. For the month of January, I will give you my Saturdays to practice whatever Sabbath means. And if at the end of the month, I'm like, that was not worth anything. I'm never doing that again. Then you'll like still love me and I probably won't choose obedience. And that's just anybody. I might be the only one that works those deals out. That's fine. Thankfully, she's, she's the, Lord, the, truth. the Lord revealed a lot to me in those four weeks. And I realized my desire for control and production and being valued in what I do. And so now, 
here years later, we practice Sabbath and we know we need it. Yeah. So for anyone in the room that's skeptical, that's like, oh, another thing to do, like whatever, try it out. Give it four weeks with other people that you're journeying alongside of. In that four weeks, I would say there are a couple of things that you want to make sure of. Like, are you, are you, pushing each other towards something better? Are you loving them well and pushing them towards the direction that Spencer mentioned of Christ-likeness? Um, there are some scenarios that could arise and you could recognize maybe this isn't the best space for me. Maybe this isn't, these aren't the best folks and that's okay. If you find yourself all confessing the same things, that's going to be really hard yeah. to, to yeah. grow in because naturally it's going to be like, girl, me too. That happened to me too this week. What do we do? You know, there's, it's, hard, it's a hard space for accountability when we're all in the same shoes. Am I right? Um, also, if you find yourself in a space where yourself or someone else in that group is in addiction, um, we would want to point our, our friends and family, our brothers and sisters towards um, clinical counseling because an addiction is something that's going to require a little bit more intentionality and yeah. um, even education around what it looks like to break those habits and patterns. Yeah. So those are just a couple of thoughts. There can be more that we dive into, uh, but you, I would say give it a trial run for four weeks. See what the Lord does in those four weeks. And then from there, I would ask you to commit four to 12 months. So after four months, you may be like, hey, I'm ready to release everyone in this group or we're going to be sent out and we're going to do this again with someone else, um, you may be like, man, four months in and I'm still not willing to share. I don't like this. It hurts. I'm not here for it. The Lord told me to stay, but I am not loving it at all. I don't, I'm, I'm wrestling in this tension Then I'd say stay. Maybe it's six months. Maybe it's eight months. Maybe it's a year, but I can promise you if you meet up with folks on a regular basis to confess the areas of your life that don't look like Jesus, you will be transformed. Yes. It has, to, it has to happen. We're bringing light to the darkness. And when light shines on it, it hurts. But the Lord does something good in that pain. Yeah. I would even go as far as saying that um, because there is this sense that when we confess our sin and pray for one another, we will experience a degree of healing. I think some of us haven't experienced healing because there's things in our lives we have not confessed. Physical, physical ailments mental and emotional healing that needs to be done because things have not been brought to the light. And again, there, there, is so, there are so many secular psychology studies that prove the benefit of confession. It is absolutely fascinating. And so I want you to experience healing. I want you to experience wholeness. And I think this is part of that journey for us. And we want to provide a basic framework. We've already seen it happen. Some of you are doing it. You're doing it. But we want to provide a basic framework to say you can use this model um, in your own kind of journey in terms of confession with another person. So, And our hope is that at the end of the day, these are multiplied and continue to grow throughout the Emmaus community, the city, and beyond uh, for the sake of Christ's likeness and being yeah. formed in his ways and, and practicing that way together. Yeah. So um, I know Spencer and I have talked about, even as you mentioned, like we're not willing to reveal some of those things. I'm thinking about moments and times in my life where I have revealed the thing. Like it, it took a lot of courage to muster it up. Um, but then I met with what the, what the culture says is good. Like, it's okay, girlfriend. We've all been there. It's okay. So recognizing this tension between like um, a gentleness, a gentle spirit in the Lord, but also the firmness of the shepherd's staff that like guides and corrects us. Yeah. So I'd like, I don't know if you you have any thoughts on um, just that tension in tone or even other like um, tendencies to look out for in these spaces? 
Yeah, so in these spaces, firmness and gentleness is required. Um, firmness being discipline, um, gentleness being meekness, or postures that we take. Um, in our culture, we're primarily bent towards gentleness, if I'm honest. Um, firmness scares us, because most of us grew up in the 90s, and the 90s were pretty good for a lot of us. Um, at a macro level, it was pretty good. Um, but we need firmness and gentleness uh, in these spaces, in the balance of both. Um, there is a temptation with both. The temptation to, to lean fully into firmness is condemnation. Mm. And condemnation is about sentencing someone. That's what condemnation is about. Sentence, sentencing someone. It's a legal term. The temptation when it comes to only being gentle is accommodation or enabling someone in their sin. Um, so we have to be aware of those, those two um, temptations. A couple of things that a band is not. It is not therapy, but it is therapeutic. Okay? That other person's not your counselor. You're not paying them $120 an hour to sit there and confess. Okay? Ooh. You're in a relationship. It's not a transaction. It's relational. Okay? It's not therapy, but it is therapeutic. All right? A couple other things. It isn't just hanging out. I get up, you know, with my girlfriends for coffee, and we talk and hang out. It's like, is anybody changing? You know, it's not just hanging out, okay? It's also not just a Bible study. This is where we, I think the Protestant Reformation has been good, but also we've kind of thrown the baby out with the bathwater. We have so much Bible knowledge in the Protestant world and like such a lack of discipleship. You know, we're missing something. We have so much knowledge, but there's very little confession and this sense of like all of life formation and, and behavioral change. So it's not just a Bible study. The scriptures can play a role if you would like for them to, but they don't have to. It could be confession and prayer, and that's it. The other thing is there's a temptation to embrace what I call niceness. All right? Um, I read something this past week that said the cult of niceness has permeated the church. Did you know that the word nice originally meant foolish, ignorant, and careless? So when we look at our little, you know, son or daughter or even our friend and say, that wasn't nice. Maybe it was. <laughs> Maybe that was foolish, you know? We're not about niceness. Kindness and niceness are very different. Niceness usually is about self-serving, okay? Um, but we want to be kind and we want to be gentle. We want to be firm as well at the same time. Um, people also, they need love and value, but in this time, people also need empowerment and courage. They need love and they need value, but they also need empowerment and courage, okay? You can't just say, I love you, and stop there. How do you love them? What direction are you pointing them in, okay? Um, here's another temptation, partial confession. Sometimes we say things like, I'm, I'm kind of struggling. With what? Well, you know, the stuff. It's like partial confession is actually going to be more harmful than full confession or not at all. You got to be detailed. You got to be honest. You got to share it all, Okay? I'm, I'm just experiencing some temptation, okay? Are you engaging in, are you practicing some of these behaviors? Are you, you know, giving in to temptation? Um, and then we also sometimes will just ask questions like, how are you doing? It's always going to end with the same answer. Fine, how are you? Good. Like, there's no depth. So that's a temptation. Um, and then as I mentioned earlier, it's always going to be easy to walk away. The first time there's conflict, because we haven't been taught how to interact in relationship, most of us at least, uh, we walk away. But I think if we can move through that and make the relationship above the problem, you're going to experience a stronger bond with that person. Mm -hmm. I think by default. So 
those are all the temptations I would say as we yeah. kind of wrap our time. Yeah, uh, as we wrap up, I wanted to share a quote that really um, presses into that more uh, by Kurt Thompson, who we've talked about quite a bit. Um, we've done book studies with some of his work. He's a psychologist, and he had mentioned um, this right here. So when it comes to our sin, it's important for us to hear someone else acknowledge that what we're talking about really is sin. Neurobiologically, it does me harm if I confess something to you and you say, that's okay, it's no big deal. He's saying it does us harm if we confess sin and that's the response we get. Because in confession, what I'm really looking for in your eyes, in your body language, in your voice, is for you to be able to say, you're right, you were wrong to do that, you're forgiven, and I'm not leaving. Mm -hmm. I need to know that that you can bear the weight of what I know to be really wrong with me and that you will still stay. If it's minimized, it will continue to linger with me. And that's really what we hope for in the beauty of this band space uh, and confessional space together is that we will be able to bear souls with one another and that in receiving the weight of that, instead of saying, it's okay, you're good girl, that we could say, no, that was wrong. You're forgiven and I'm still here. Um, In closing, I just want to um, point out that, as I mentioned before, this confessional space fits into the agenda that we have for your life. (laughs) To become more like Jesus, to be transformed by his ways as we practice and journey together. We really see it as a catalyst for all of life formation, Um, disciple-making, renewal and revival. Spencer, Spencer mentioned that earlier, but even what we saw at Asbury most recently, that came from a place of confession. It all stemmed from there. Um, And I don't know about you, but I want to be a part of that. I want to be a part of the renewal and the revival and the work that the Lord has all around us uh, and becoming more like Him. So um, to close out today, we are going to partake of communion together, gather around the table together. Um, I do have a new liturgy that I'm going to have us read, and I think it's our hope that this is a liturgy that we'll read um, before communion moving forward as a church body uh, to posture ourselves in a place of um, confession and repentance to the Father, not as an end goal, but as a starting point, and to remind ourselves that there are deep recesses in our lives, in our habits, in our closets um, that we like to leave in the darkness, but the Lord wants to shine a light on that uh, for us to become more like Him. So I'm going to invite us um, to read these words on the screen together uh, in hopes that it is the starting point for um, confession and transformation.